What's wrong with taking venture capital money? Welcome to Venture Voice, show number 20. I'm your host, Greg Gallant, interviewing Joel Spolsky of Fog Creek Software. Sometimes I get to choose who I interview, but often I have enough listeners demand a certain guest that I have absolutely no say in the matter. This was one of those cases. After quitting Microsoft, Joel started Fog Creek Software just a couple of months before the big dot-com bubble burst. He stuck with his own business and finally hit it big when he started selling bug-tracking software to programmers. Now you could say Joel's a programmer's programmer, a sort of geek philosopher. His blog is read religiously by thousands and has inspired two books. He is focused on how to build great companies for people to work at and getting those people to create great software. I visited him in his Manhattan office and it seemed like a great work environment. Every programmer had a big desk, especially by Manhattan standards, and Joel was anxiously waiting to tear down a wall to expand into the office next door. He's never taken on any venture capital money, but his business is growing fast. Enjoy. Joel, welcome to Venture Voice. Thank you. So tell, so tell me about how you got started. I, I know you started off at Microsoft, which it must be a lot different from being an entrepreneur on your own now. Uh, that was really my first job after college was uh, as a program manager on the Excel team at Microsoft. And that was way back in the early 90s before the internet thing came to anybody's awareness. And my responsibility at on the Excel team was programmability. And in that role... I sort of led the strategy of what became known as Visual Basic for Applications, which became the standard programming language with which you customize and extend uh, all of Microsoft's Office uh, application suite. So going into Microsoft, what was your view of them? Was this the cool software company or was this the big evil corporation? Uh, it was kind of weird. I mean, coming from campus, you always think, oh, Microsoft doesn't get it. They're, they make DOS and some other games. And, and really, in those days, Windows was remarkably cheesy. But it was pretty much the only good software job you could find in those days that wasn't in the defense establishment or that I could find. And there was the, the other alternative was Oracle, and they had their issues even back then. But Microsoft just seemed like a really fun place. And when you went out there to interview, and I did an internship there, you realized that the people there were really smart and that they got it, so to speak. And they all had the mythical man month on their, on their shelf, and they were really thinking about these things. Uh, and especially on some of the I don't want to say elite, but some of the more central teams at Microsoft, like the Excel team, there was a lot of in-house knowledge of how you build commercial software of a high quality that nobody else in the world had anywhere. And they had figured it out for themselves, really. And I know that sort of the old mainframe people will say, oh, they were just rediscovering what we figured out in the mainframes. But it's not really true. And PCs were a different world. You know, in the PC world, you had to write software that ran on arbitrarily configured computers on millions of them. And this was the first time that it ever happened. You had a usability barrier that nobody else had. And admittedly, Apple may have done more creative things usability-wise, but Microsoft really did have some of the core knowledge of how to do things. And just in terms of how do you make a team that's productive with 50, 50 programmers without everybody tripping over each other, how do you use testers, how many testers do you need, how do you document things, and a lot of the stuff which has become the core knowledge, so to speak, of my website, of Joel on Software, is stuff that Microsoft figured out first and had going right way back then. They've so. since forgotten all that stuff. So. <laughs> software has been really profitable, but a lot of people go out of business at it. What, what, you learn, what was like the one most important thing that you learned there, not just how to write software, but how to really make money? 
that's a good question. When you're working, I, I probably didn't learn anything about business at Microsoft. And the reason is that when you're, Microsoft is large enough that you really can specialize. And they like to say, you know, if somebody is a really, really talented software designer, a really talented coder, a really talented tester or something, they really should concern themselves with that, with that one thing. And they should use their talents full time and not really get involved in any of the other aspects of the business that somebody else might be better at. So the truth is, you know, although there were some cases where I learned some things from having conversations with people who are really smart, uh, and I can give some examples. I'll give an example of that. At one point, the, our big competition in those days for Excel was Quattro Pro, which was a Borland product. And they came out, at some point, they lowered their price to like $99, and Excel was around 500 list price, you know, 350 street. And they lowered their price to $99, and I said... And I said to Louis Levin, who was the uh, business unit manager, uh, sort of the business manager of the Excel product unit, I said, what are we going to do about this? Are we going to match their $99 price? And he said, are you kidding? That just means we won. This is the fact that they had to lower their price to $99. It's over now. Borland is no longer going to be relevant. We don't even have to think about them anymore, let alone not match their price. And that was really kind of interesting to me that he had that business, the depth of business understanding to understand that, you know, it's not like, hey, your competitor lowers prices. You're going to have to match them. It's that if they're lowering prices, they're kind of desperate. They're trying something else. And now you're in this great position of having the, the $500 product and the competition only has a $100 product. Your product is going to seem five times better, whether or not it is. It was probably 20% better than Quattro Pro, but it wasn't five times better. But there's a lot of advantage to having the high price product in a, in, a, in, a, in a market, especially if it's in the same range. And there's a lot of stuff like that that, um, you know, I, 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 I learned, if I learned it, it wasn't, it was through osmosis or through overhearing somebody and not because it was really my job at Microsoft to pay attention to the business world. So you were at Microsoft and you managed to pick up a lot of things that were going on there. But most people who are big companies, like you were saying, don't ever learn kind of how the operation works. They're just specialists. How do you get that versatility? Um, well, I mean, the way I got it was just an enormous amount of reading. I consumed voracious amounts of you know, trade magazines, books about this kind of stuff, pretty much endlessly, and I'm not sure why. I think that I always knew that I was interested in doing a startup one day and felt that the more I knew about the software industry, the more prepared I would be to do that. And I feel that ultimately kind of that's true, that at this point in my career, I really feel the benefit of my years of experience in terms of being able to do things and get them right the first time or at least the second time, although we've definitely made our mistakes. We've definitely learned from experience, but I feel like I can get things right the first time a lot faster than, than many people. On the other hand, these young 18-year-old kids starting software companies these days and dot-coms are, just have a lot more energy than I do, so they have that advantage over me. And I wouldn't say that necessarily the years of experience before I started the company were a huge benefit. So it was a trick there at Microsoft to really to getting enough out of it that you could at least compete with the 18-year-olds out there that... Right. Leapfrog you rather than just you learning how to program in this language a little bit better than the next guy. Um, it's hard to tell. One is I was lucky enough to work on the Excel team, which had this the whole system of software development really down pat. They had figured it out from first principles. They didn't listen to anybody. They went against the conventional wisdom on so many things, and they were right to go against conventional wisdom on these things. And that made them really successful. And even to this day, the people who hate Microsoft the most still will tell you that Excel is a pretty darn good app. And, uh, and that was because it was just this great team that had figured out how to do software development for PCs, GUIs, uh, a lot better than anybody else had. 
time I was there, there were like 250 people on that team, 50 programmers and 200 other people. And to get a team that large developing software, uh, especially in the face of the, the known problems like the mythical, mythical man month that add, adding people will only make a product later and so on and so forth. But uh, they, they managed to pull it off and they invented a lot of things along the way, a lot of which now are sort of under the rubric of agile development in the sense that they're not very formal. What you see was the trick there that they had, what made that group come together so well and so many um, fail? Yeah, I don't know. A really smart people who are willing to try to figure things out, willing to, uh, I guess, maybe a certain amount of skepticism about, you know, accepted practices. I'm not sure why it was such a, such a uh, magnet of talent at the time. Would you credit that to Microsoft's good doing, or do you think somehow they just got lucky and the right people were in the right room? No, I think that Microsoft has always, well, first of all, Microsoft has always been better at recruiting and interviewing and making sure that only the good people get in the front door uh, than any other company. They had better interviewing techniques than, you know, they invented the, the brain teaser interview and, the, and the, the interview in which you have to write code. And for a long time, certainly when they were hiring at a lower rate than they're hiring now, those techniques were very effective in making sure that the people that got in there were really, really smart and really effective. And I don't know quite what their policies were about how to allocate people internally, but I got to think that the smart people were put on the office team. So you got to interact with these smart people and were you already thinking, hey, you know, let me figure some stuff out here so I can one day jump off on my own or were you just having a good time? Both, both. I always... I always knew that I wanted to start on my own somehow, but I'm very conservative in my personal uh, behavior. I'm, very, I'm always very careful about stepping on the next rock and making sure that there's a sure footing there, footing there before I move on, shift my weight over to it. And the truth is that I don't even know how I finally got convinced that I would be able to start a company. I had come pretty close a couple of times and just realized that I didn't know what I was doing. But... I think what happened around 1999 when I finally made the decision to jump off is that so many people were starting companies and they were being so successful and they were all so stupid that I felt that I could probably do better than they did uh, just by doing the same thing as they were doing, only being a little bit smarter about it. And maybe it's not stupid or smarter, but sometimes I just took other business models that people had. And so when I started Fog Creek uh, with Michael Pryor, we sort of thought we understood exactly what was going to happen, how it was going to work, and why it was a sure thing, and why even if it failed, we wouldn't be out any cash money. We would just be out some time. And our theory was starting a company, bootstrapping a company by doing consulting. There was an infinite demand for consulting in 1999 if you knew how to build websites, especially database-backed, back-end, you know, programmed websites. And there was an infinite market for that, and the going rate was $200, $250 an hour, and that was tons of money. And the big problem that everybody was having in those days was how do you hire enough programmers uh, to, to meet this demand? And we thought we had a formula for that because when we looked at the programmers that were getting jobs doing this at the big companies like Scient and Viant and Razorfish and IXL and all those big web shops, they were being treated like typists. They were being shoved into gigantic rooms with rows and rows of identical desks and worked ridiculous hours and not paid very well and not given any kind of equity usually. Or if they were given equity, it was in some dot-com. Uh, but they were being treated poorly, basically. And I felt that if we treated programmers better and gave them private offices and air-on chairs and big screen monitors and first-class plane tickets and, and, and so on and so forth, that people would want to work for me more than they'd want to work for other people. And therefore, I would have supply of programmers to meet this insatiable demand and I would be successful. And with all that excess money that you generate, all the profit you generate from consulting because you're charging 250 an hour and if you're, you know, you're probably paying about 50 to 60 an hour in costs and expenses and salaries, maybe 100 an hour. But, but that excess money, 
I thought we could use to invest in new software products. And I thought we would pick some software products that our clients wanted. And we would have this connection through the consulting business with the clients in order to build the right kind of products that there was a market for. And then we could do the licensing of the software. And the licensing, I thought, the actual software business is a much better business than consulting because it scales much better. You can sell the same piece of software 27 times. We've sold fog bugs. Gosh, I don't know how many times this morning and made something like $10,000 already today based on my estimate. And and we haven't written any code yet today. Right. So, 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 so the, the licensing business is a lot better. Now, so that's what we thought. We thought we'd start with consulting and you know we'd build up a software business. Unfortunately, exactly two months after we started the company, the consulting business collapsed massively and suddenly. Somebody, uh, insiders have told me that Razorfish, who was our quote-unquote competitor in those days, lost 90% of their billables um, from one month to the next. And I think it was November 2000, but it happened a little bit later for other people. And it was just an amazing dropping off of the cliff of the demand for consulting. And that's something that's kind of interesting when you look at the consulting business, which I learned in November 2000, (laughs) was that people hire consultants when they're growing. And when they're shrinking, the first thing they do is fire all the consultants. That means that the number of the market for consultants is equal to the first derivative, hate to be mathematical, of companies. In other words, there's a huge market for consultants when things are growing and a zero and empty, no market whatsoever when things are shrinking which means that the change in demand for consultants is much more dramatic than the change in the business world. So if the business world merely tips from growing 1% a year to shrinking 1% a year, you, you'll, you'll go from a demand for 100,000 consultants to zero. And so um, that's what happened. Uh, luckily, we had just started. We hadn't grown. We hadn't hired very many consultants. And the reason I say luckily is because nobody knew that this happened in November 2000 until April 2001 when they started to realize that these jobs were not going to come back, that these gigs were not coming back at all. In fact, if you talk to these companies like Razorfish and Scient in those days, they said things like, well, it looks like the sales cycle is getting a little bit longer, but we're not too worried, really. We've got a few guys on the bench, yeah, but you know our customers have always rewarded, rewarded us for investing in human resources and hiring, so we're still hiring like crazy. And what happened to most of these companies is that they paid their salaries from, from November until April, and they realized there wasn't going to be anyone uh, until they just went bankrupt and closed. We were lucky enough not to have hired anybody, and so we didn't have that ridiculous burn rate. And so we sort of scavenged around. And we did. We had hired two consultants who we laid off, uh, but we scavenged around and we found fog bugs, which we were sort of sitting on. And we said, "All right, let's just launch this. Let's see if we can get anything, uh, get any revenue out of this." And we did get a little bit of revenue out of it, and we started paying attention to that revenue and paying attention to what customers were asking for, and we just started delivering the things that they asked for one at a time. And that product grew like crazy. In the meantime, we kept thinking to ourselves, "Bug tracking software? Who needs bug tracking software? What a..." tiny niche how could that how could there ever be a business in just that one little narrow thing and 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 so we had this grandiose scheme of content management software as being like the be all and end all and maybe we had gotten the bug from phil greenspun who made uh ars digita which had acs content management which was a content management system partially we got the i you know the bug from dave weiner who was talking about content management this that and the other thing and the the uh the players in content management in those days were vignette with story server and gee i don't remember I used to know ATG Dynamo and those products were not very good and they were unbelievably expensive and those companies had billion dollar valuations even after the crash it took them a while to to join the crash crashism so we thought that was a great business compared to bug tracking software and we you know our entry into that business was CityDesk and it turns out that uh, that wasn't such a good business uh, the content management software is a little bit too abstract 
for most people. They don't really think, oh, I need content management software. They think, I need a, a website for job listings. I'm a human resources person and I need a place where I can put the job listings and manage them automatically. Or I'm a real estate agent and I want to put my listings of my houses for sale up on the web and be able to edit that. And neither of those people go to Google and say content management system because they don't know what that means. The term is too abstract to sell to. So for that reason, among various others, CityDesk was uh, not a huge hit. It was, you know, it sold to a certain amount of people. We still sell it. We still support it. It makes a good amount of money if somebody wanted to do it as like a private, you know, micro ISV kind of business. But I don't really believe in that product that much anymore. But on the other hand, Fogbugs has been this humongous success, just basically doubling in revenue every year. We're on version 4.0. 5.0 is going to be really great when it comes out. It's actually kind of amazing how we've gotten, we've built a big company um, on the basis of that. It seems kind of ironic the way that you guys are growing, that you bootstrap this company. And generally, when people think of bootstrap companies, you know, they're using folding chairs and makeshift tables. Yeah. And when they oh, think we had, of the we guys buying air on chairs, they're thinking of the VC-backed companies that are flush with cash. It, That's true. We just put, we actually put a higher priority on, although we bootstrapped and we had folding chairs for a couple of days while we waited for the Aerons to arrive, um, we did put a priority in the early days on, we always were trying to figure out how could we attract the great programmers because our model has always been, if we attract the great programmers, something will work. In fact, let me, let me sort of describe our model of the way we think about software. We don't think about it like we've got this great idea and we're going to make a software company based on this idea and get rich. That's sort of the Google model, right? We've got this idea called PageRank. Citation analysis for websites allows you to provide better search results, and they made a business on that that was fabulously successful based on their idea. And that really is the way that most naive startup-type people and, and want to make a company people tend to think, oh, what's the idea? Uh, we don't really think of it that way. We think of it, we, we go one step higher, and we say, how are we going to attract the people who can really deliver software? The people who, when you pay them, will give you a great software product, no matter what the product is. How are we going to attract them to want to work for us so that we can be successful? And so our model is make the best working environment for programmers, leading to being able to hire the best programmers, leading to mystery step number three, leading to profit. <laughs> and uh, that's, that, that's sort of been our model. So there's really kind of two kinds of companies, two kinds of ways of, there's really three ways of doing a startup. One is the I've got an idea and I'm going to try to execute it on it way. The other is I'm going to start with whatever idea, just something to get started, just to get some customers. I don't know, the software of the rubber industry. Don't even know what that means. And I'm going to do something and I'm going to throw it out there and I'm going to see what sticks and then I'm going to execute like crazy. I'm going to refine and I'm going to get to know my customers better and I'm going to improve and I'm going to execute. And that way works really well, number two way, where you go into any business, no matter how stupid it seems, and just execute really well and incrementally improve things and don't spend money you don't have. That always works because every business could use a new entrant that, that can execute better than the existing uh, players. Our way is, uh, the Fog Creek way is like a little bit more. We're concentrating on trying to build the factory that can take capital, which is easy to get and cheap, and VCs are desperate to throw it at anybody, and take capital and somehow convert it to working software that's good, that people like, that solves problems for people, and that will cause them to pay money. Uh, and so... Fog Creek is the factory that I've been building for five years that, if we're successful, can take capital and uh, produce software. And we basically had the first example of that this summer where, the, for the first time, we really kind of lived up to our ambition of being able to take an, a raw idea and have everything that we needed in place to throw out the idea and make a successful product. And we pulled it off this summer, and that was the Project Aardvark. 
uh, thing if you've been following on my website. So let me tell you the story about that a little bit. It started out with uh, providing tech support for fog bugs. Um, When customers try to install fog bugs, sometimes they would run into some trouble because every server is different. Trying to walk through server installation things over the phone with people was enormously painful. And we realized, hey, if we just had some kind of remote control software, uh, we could really solve these people's problems in much less time. And there's this open source thing called VNC, and it does exactly that. It's remote control software, but it has this problem that doesn't really work right through firewalls. And so it was never practical for us to use VNC. And when we did, we had to spend about 10 minutes explaining to them over the phone how to configure everything so that they could go out from their side instead of in from our side because they were always behind a firewall. We were behind a firewall, but we set up a computer that was outside the firewall for the purpose of this particular you know, tech support problem. And one night I'm sitting there with a customer on the phone and he's a very tech savvy guy and I'm very tech savvy and he understood VNC, he had used VNC, he knew about TCP IP and firewalls and protocols and ports and I'm just walking him through the steps of getting set up so that I can remote control his computer so that I can fix his problem in three minutes. And it took eight to 10 minutes, I can't remember exactly, for me to walk him through that step of downloading and setting up. And so I thought to myself, eight to 10 minutes with a very tech savvy customer, this is ridiculous. You know, imagine what, what what happens when you have somebody that doesn't know about VNC and ports and firewalls and that kind of stuff. I, I had this idea. That we had four summer interns planned for the summer. And I said, let me take one of those interns and I'll have him write some kind of a batch script or something that'll just make this a little bit easier for this configuration scenario. And, and, and then I sort of had the second insight, which was, hey, there must be other people that have this exact same problem. I wonder if there's any products out there on the market that solve it. And I looked out on the market and there were some products that were very expensive or that were had all kinds of... They had their own issues. And uh, and I thought, hey, this must be a good business. And so I said, why don't I take all four interns and I'll have them spend the summer making a really slick, professional, polished, for sale version uh, VNC that works through any kind of firewall situation. And in order to do that, we had to run our own servers, but we already have a data center. So in, in one summer, basically I wrote a spec for the interns that got here. Three of them were programmers and one of them was a marketing intern. So he wrote the copy for the website and tried to get publicity and that kind of stuff. We were able to actually build this thing. In about four weeks, we had working versions out there. And by the end of the summer, when the interns went home, we, were, we had customers who were paying us every day uh, for a successfully working version of the service. Now, the total cost of, of implementing that, I calculated about $80,000. So we spent, uh, we gave the interns nice salaries. Um, we paid for their housing here in New York, bought them lunch. We got them really nice computers with double monitors and everything like that and the air on chairs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we bought the domain name copilot.com and uh, a few other things. But basically, I calculate that we spent, uh, we went to a trade show to, to launch the whole thing. Uh, I think we spent about $80,000 in the course of the summer and we're well on track to be profitable with that. And basically, the way I describe that and the way I see that is, you know, we had the idea that just came at us suddenly. And we were in a position where we could take an idea and make a working product out of it. And that's where I want to be. So it seems dangerous to want to get these programmers together. I mean, a lot there are business schools out there selling people on the idea you need two years of discipline training as an MBA to figure out how to recognize these opportunities in the market. And a lot of programmers will spend days doing this cool little program that they'd love to use and maybe five other people in the world right. could ever put to use. Right. How do you keep these guys building things that a lot of people want to buy or enough people want to buy that you can pay their rent? Uh, yeah, that's a, good, that's a good question. Well, to some extent, when, you're all, when it only costs you $80,000 to develop a new product, 
that doesn't set the bar very high. In other words, the level of success that you need for that to be a profitable investment is not super high. And the truth is, for example, if we make $160,000 in the first first year with Copilot, geez, that's fantastic. But if Microsoft launched the same product, made $160,000 the first year, they would close it down. It wouldn't even be worth it. If they made $16 million the first year, they would probably close it down and say it's not worth the trouble to even think about. And so uh, maybe it's because we're small and maybe it's just because all I really care about is the return on investment feature. So the first part is we're not setting the bar very high. But the second part, I think there's just a real easy question that you kind of have to ask yourself when you start a business. And the question is, what is the pain that somebody's having? How does my product solve that pain? And will this person be willing to spend money to solve the pain in the way in which I solve it? And if you don't have a real clear, obvious, smack dab, hit the nail on the head answer to those questions, I don't think you're going to be successful. I mean, you and I, a couple of nights ago, were at the New York Tech Meetup, and about six, six people got up and showed the demos of their little companies that they were starting. And with every one of them, what surprised me about all six of them, and maybe this is just a feature of New York, which is unfortunate, but not a single one of them really explained pain that somebody was having that they would be willing to spend and how their product eliminated this pain. Instead, they had sort of, they were all, let's not name names, but they were all these sort of grand visions of this brave new world in which, um, I don't know, people pay for attention or something like that. I don't know. And, and, and they didn't really explain person A has problem B, technology solves problem B in such and such a way, and person A is willing to pay for it. And if you don't have answers for that, then uh, uh, your products won't succeed. So in the case of, you know, if you look at our products, fog bugs, what's the pain that people are having? The pain is that it's impossible to keep track of all the things that they need to do before they ship their software in an organized way. Do we solve it? Yes. Are the people willing to pay for it? Heck yeah. Copilot, what's the pain? The obvious pain is that when you're trying to walk somebody over the phone through fixing a problem, it's just really, really hard to walk them through it. And there is no tool out there that will allow you to remote control their computer that works in the modern environment of firewalls. Do we solve it? Yep. Go to our website, type in your name, download Copilot, and you are fixing those computer problems uh, seconds later at a very reasonable cost, if I say so myself. So, and, and, but I'm seeing so many startups these days. Either you see a startup from a techie who's trying to solve their own kind of problem, or you see a startup from somebody who doesn't really get the technology that much, or maybe they're having big thoughts, but they're not really thinking about whose problems are they solving. Uh, those ones are less likely to work. So thinking back to your days at Microsoft and your own experience starting this business and seeing how these different economies operate, do you see that you that just every programmer has to start thinking a different way, has to start thinking about, is this something that enough people are feeling the pain of, or is it a matter of just getting the right mix of people that you get, here's a business guy who can tell you if it's an opportunity, and here's a programmer? I think that, you, well, first of all, you need a mix of people. I don't think it hurts to have a bunch of programmers that don't really get the business side um, because, you know, if the technical side is their art and they do that well, then you definitely don't want to give up those people. On the other hand, the pure business people, or the people that don't really get code and have not written code, somehow I feel like they're not going to stumble upon the, the business opportunities. If you take the case of Copilot, the key observation I had with developing Copilot is that there already existed software called VNC that did most of what we wanted. And if we just wrote some configuration utilities for it, made a nice website to wrap it all up, and ran our own servers uh, at a data center that would provide the routing around the firewalls, that we could make this existing code do what we wanted. And in order to understand that, I think you really did have to be a geek. You really do have to understand the technology. You really do have to understand, you know, that there exist methods of getting around firewalls by having both peers connect outwards to a, to a reflector. And that's something that a business person might say, hey, this problem exists, but they're not going to see that opportunity unless they're able to connect a deep knowledge of what the technology can do. 
with their knowledge of business. And so you really need somebody who's both. And I have long since said, look, a, a software company is not going to be successful if it doesn't have a serious geek uh, running it, running the show and making the making the, the, the big decisions. And I've seen that time and time again. I don't think you can make a high-tech company in the long run that doesn't have a, a geek. Geeks making the key decisions, unfortunately, um, for the MBAs. But that's what I think. <laughs> Hopefully we don't have too many MBA listeners. Yeah, we probably turned I don't, I, <laughs> Or I those six I, people who presented the other night. <laughs> uh, yeah. I recently, actually, I recently got in trouble with MBAs uh, in particular because we started a new thing at Fog Creek, which is the Fog Creek Software Management Training Pro- Program. Uh, and here the idea is to take people who may, may have started out as programmers or maybe not even started out as programmers and want to assume leadership or management roles in, the, in IT or, or technology management and give them a three-year practical experience that, that, that really prepares them for leadership and management of software companies. And I think about 75 to 90% of what a, what, a, what a big software company does is not actually writing lines of code. Probably the number of programmers at Microsoft is about 10% of their employees. I'm not really sure, but that, that's, that's typical. And you, know, and you look at the military and you find that about 10% of the soldiers are actually soldiers. The other 90% you know, are in the kitchen <laughs> or something. And so it's that other 75% that the, that, the, that the programmers just don't understand. And when they start their own companies, they often kind of fall on their face because they don't really get all the other stuff. The mark- they, they, they think of it as that business marketing kind of stuff. But there's other things. There's QA, there's public relations, there's tech support, there's sales, there's inside sales, there's account management where you go out and do sales, there's just a billion other things that software companies have to do. Strategy, partnership programs, beta management, running beta programs, project management. I, I go on for a long time, but there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff that software companies do other than writing lines of code. And the geeks who start companies often are missing that kind of stuff. So we started, um, we're launching this thing called the Fog Creek Software Management Training Program. It's a terrible name. It's meant to be a three-year program, uh, kind of entry-level for people right out of school, that want to learn about the software industry from the inside, learn all those roles by doing them, basically have kind of an apprenticeship in uh, the software industry to prepare them for uh, careers in, in, in leadership of the software industry. Now, it sounds like that'd be a very, like you demand kind of these entrepreneurial aspects of people that you can have four interns come in and launch a whole new product. And it was only a budget of 80000 mm-hmm. Do you worry that with software, I mean, with it just getting cheaper and cheaper to start a business, that maybe the most, the brightest, most entrepreneurial kids are just going to start businesses and you're going to be left with the ones who aren't bold enough to do that? Maybe. Or maybe I'll get left with the smart ones who are careful. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I'm not really sure uh, if there's an issue there. There's definitely, to some extent, I feel like there's a little bit of competition for hiring like internships at Fog Creek with programs like Paul Graham's Summer Startup, Summer Founders program and so on and so forth. Uh, the truth is there's a lot of kids out there that are excited by technology and there's a lot of people that recognize the value of working at a successful startup. Uh, getting to, you know, We're still small enough that, you, that somebody that works here will see all aspects of the software development process and will learn all aspects of the software development process uh, no matter what they do. And so uh, I, I think there's a lot of value towards that if you are the type of person who really kind of, kind of wants to learn before you do. Then again, uh, and, and, and so I actually felt this summer, I felt a little bit of competition going on between my interns to building Copilot versus the people that did the Summer Founders program uh, over with Paul Graham. And uh, to their credit, my interns developed a product that was generating revenue and selling a real product to real customers by the end of the summer. And the Summer Founders program, uh, none of them did. A couple of those products are actually out there on the web. 
I don't know where the rest of them are, but there's certainly none of them are at the point of revenue. And maybe those will be better companies. Not sure. Uh, to some extent, uh, obviously, our interns here had a big, huge advantage in that we gave them the incredible spec. We drove them direct, directly in the direction they needed to go. We just sort of set them up and faced them in the direction they needed to go and said, go. In fact, at one point in the beginning of the summer, I actually said, you guys are going to use .NET on the server. Why? doesn't matter. Because you know what? .NET is fine. Java is fine. PHP is fine. These are all great development environments. It is not worth a second of time deciding what to use. Just use .NET. Move on with it. Don't even spend a day, day on that. Uh, and so that was an example of like we steered people in, you know, now half the people are listening saying, oh, 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 you steered them in the wrong direction. But you know what? I'm getting revenue and you're not. <laughs> so there. <laughs> Jealousy cats there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, but, but on the other hand, actually, I, I know a lot of those kids from the, from Paul Graham's group and they're very bright and they're very smart and they're going to do some great stuff. And I'm looking forward to seeing great stuff from them as well. They're just sort of, they're going to be stumbling along a little bit more. They don't quite have that level of guidance. And I think that there are going to be people that recognize the value uh, of our way and people that recognize the value of starting companies. Now, what is this program for people who don't uh, his, uh, there's a program it's uh, the name of his company that is uh, Y Combinator and he just just recently had a thing called the Summer Founders Program and right now he, I think he's still taking applications for something called the Winter Founders Program and it's basically uh, angel capital it's a very very small amount of money uh, I, I think he said $6,000 per person and uh, you have to have an idea that you pitch to him and if he likes it you get I think $6,000 per person in exchange for 6 or 7% of the equity of the company um, and it, it's, it's angel investment. It's sort of a combination incubator angel investment kind of model. So how do you capitalize Fog Creek? Uh, how, how do we get the money? How do we get the money? Well, really from the consulting that we did in the first couple of months, gave us the money to get started. And by the time that ran out, we were already selling fog bugs and we were making money off of that. So uh, I think at the peak, the amount of money that I had to loan the company was around $50,000. And that was sort of... I guess that was in the early days where we kept thinking that consulting engagements would show up any minute now because they always had and they really weren't going to. And we got to the point where I think we were down about 50000 uh in cash. And so uh, that I just put in myself. But uh, other than that, we're, we're, we're bootstrapped and quote-unquote profitable from year one. When you were at that point in the consulting business had dried up, so had the venture capital business. Did you not take venture capital because... You didn't want it at that point or just because it wasn't there or it would have been too much trouble to try to find? We never wanted venture capital. And I, I think that venture capital is just radically misaligned with the needs of founders and entrepreneurs. And there's just some serious problems with the current venture capital model. And I think the VCs recognize it now because they're not finding places to put their money that they like. We never liked that model. We had seen way too many companies flame out because of bad VCs. Everybody was afraid of getting arse digitized. Because they all read Phil Greenspun stuff on the web and they read about his experience with VCs and didn't want that to happen to them. And and what we kept hearing is that basically getting VC funding is going to be a full-time job for one person for about a year. That was the estimates that we kind of heard. And we thought, heck, think how many customers you can get with a full-time person you know, developing software and selling software. Uh, you know, My mentality has been uh, in a war, you have people who make bullets and people who shoot bullets. And in a software company, you have people who make software and people who sell software. And anything else is a distraction. And so that you know, we saw VC as being an enormous distraction, and you would wind up with somebody who didn't really understand your business trying to get rid of you and get rid of the cat that you had on your homepage and bring in some kind of really, really bad, you know, experienced CEO or something, some crony of theirs who, who would do a bad job uh, and drive your company to the ground. And we didn't want that to happen. But I wrote a, an analysis of that in those days that was called fixing venture capital. 
And it was really about, it should have been called Venture Capital is Broken because I never got around <laughs> to explaining how to fix it. Uh, but, <laughs> um, but the real problem is, 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 is that there's a couple of problems. One is the misalignment in, in the risk portfolio that you want to have. Uh, a venture capitalist diversifies away risk by investing in multiple companies. An entrepreneur can't do that. And therefore, the, a venture capitalist or a venture capital fund is going to be looking for a selection of investments which have high risk and high return. And an entrepreneur is probably only going to start one or two or at the most three companies in their lifetime. And they don't want to take all that risk. And they're willing to forego some of the return in order to have it be more reliable. So that immediately sets up the first conflict uh, with the VC. And that's the first big problem. The second big problem is that the sheer application of money to a business causes certain things to get out of whack. And uh, I, I have a little chart on my website where I drew a little chart saying that as a company grows, there's this typical little hockey stick if you're being successful in all kinds of dimensions. So you see, the, you first see the hockey stick in how good your code is because you're developing code all the time and it gets better and better and better and meets more and more people's needs. So the code gets better and better and better. And then the number of employees you have, that grows. You have more and more employees. And the amount of revenues you have, the number of customers, that grows. You have more and more customers. And your PR grows, which are what I call PR is like awareness of your product in the market. That grows. More and more people find out about it. Those all grow in a normal situation. They grow gently and geometrically. And that's all great when those things stay in alignment. Now, anytime any two of those curves get out of whack, you have a problem, which is probably going to be kill your company. So here's... I, I, you pick any two of those curves and you can see what the, what, what the problem is. Let's say that you have too much awareness of your product before the code is very good. And I call this the Marimba phenomenon. You can read about this on my website. But everybody knows about your product and they all go to check, out, check it out. You've only been working on it for a couple of months and it's not that great yet. And now you've got a million people who found out about your product who all think it's junk and they're never going to look at it again for five years. In the early days, you really don't want that much awareness of your product while you figure it out, while you get it right, while you fine tune it. Uh, similarly, let's say you hire way too many employees. Well, then you have all these employees. You, if you have more employees than you have revenue, for example, well, obviously you're burning cash at a ridiculous rate. But let's say that somebody can support that. Uh, you also have corporate culture problems. In other words, when you bring in too many people too fast, they don't learn the way you do things and the good way to do things, and they don't learn from each other, and they just start doing it the way that they were doing it at their previous failed company, which they had to leave because it failed. And so there's all kinds of problems with hiring too many people too fast. You know, any faster than doubling, I think, every year, uh, people just won't get trained and they won't learn. They won't become a culture properly. Uh, so any of those things going out of whack is a problem. And the trouble with venture capital is it says, take all this money, spend it, you must spend it. And you look around and it's kind of hard. It's easy to spend it on a bunch of employees. So then now you have too many employees. But you can't suddenly take a development team from one programmer to 12 programmers. The 11 programmers are going to make a mess out of things. And so that's a bad place to spend it on people. And so maybe you hire some HR managers. You do hire programmers and you have that problem. Yeah. And then another really easy way to spend all this VC money is with marketing. You're like, hell, let's just do marketing. Let's have advertising campaigns. And the interesting thing about an advertising campaign is you can always double the amount you spend on it. You're like, what the hell? Let's go for $3 million of ads instead of $1 million of ads. And that's a real easy way just by turning a knob that you can spend some of this VC money. And the problem is that, again, you're, you're creating the marimba phenomenon. You're creating awareness of your product before it's any good. And that's a real big problem uh, that you're going to have. So the application of money, it's hard to spend money making your product better, unfortunately. That just takes time and talent. And you can hire talent, but it's going to take a while. It's going to take some gestation. You're going to have to have a few releases, get it out to customers, get the feedback. Gently improve it over the years. There's no way to accelerate that. But all the other things you can accelerate, unfortunately. And so it doesn't really work for, for you. And so money that's invested uh, in a VC-type 
world is uh, often wasted, unfortunately. So you've been quite bold and grown your business without it. You were telling me, I mean, we're in a beautiful office right now, 15th floor, great view of New York, and you decided to go here. Now, you know, it seems like it's enough to fit over a dozen people, and you decided yeah, to come here with three people. we're actually about to double the uh, space, yeah. And about to double. How do you make yeah. that bold move where you have three people, and you say, let me get an office that can hold over a dozen? And- well, what started happening was that we looked at, uh, in the early days, our... We, we had no idea what was going to happen the next day. When we, the day we launched Fogbugs, I, said to, I remember saying to Michael, you know, we might never sell a single copy of this or we might sell $50,000 the first month. I didn't really expect any more than that, but I just had no idea. As it turns out, the, the answer was, I think, $5,000 or $6,000 the first month. We just had no idea what that number was going to look like. And nobody had any experience with this. We just had no concept. And you really can't know. But what we noticed within about a month is that, uh, sorry, within about a year, what we noticed is that the uh, growth of sales of fog bugs was pretty smooth. And we actually started to see some pretty, really, pretty smooth charts. And we started to get pretty confident in our ability to deliver uh, those numbers. And now that we've been watching those same growth curves for more than four years consistently, you know, reliably and fitting a line very nicely mathematically, we have a heck of a lot of confidence that that's going to keep working. And what's your ambition here? Do you just want to always have a small shop where you can know every programmer and make sure the quality of the software is great or bigger one day? Uh, that's a good question. I don't, <laughs> we don't really have, I, I mean, uh, I, I think we will become bigger. I, I really do. I think we're probably the most likely outcome for Fog Creek is that we'll uh, continue to grow and that we'll be a fairly large independent software vendor, you know. Independent meaning not Microsoft, <laughs> software vendor, and not, uh, not Google, I guess these days. <laughs> Probably for a while. You know, one of the great things about my job, and the great thing about a company that grows slowly like this, is that you can solve problems one at a time. And you can, you can, when when problems come up, you sort of have the leisure of just fixing it. You don't get twenty problems in one day because your Super Bowl ad crashed the servers and created too much demand on your tech support department and blew up something else and. I don't know, now everybody's saying bad things about you. You, you know, we, we get to solve each problem one at a time. And right now, the problem that I'm working on real hard these days is sort of not enough managers for Fog Creek. And the way I'm going to solve that is with this management training pro- program that we're, that we're launching. And, you know, that'll take a few years to kick in and to start turning out some really good managers. But that's fine. I can wait. I don't have to have managers tomorrow. The problem that I was solving, you know, a couple of weeks ago was, gee, I don't even remember. But, but you know, we're working through whatever the problems are that arise. You, you sort of have the leisure of solving them because more or less the business is in balance at any given time and all you have to do is watch for it to start to tilt out of balance and then you kind of fix that thing and with 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 any kind of hyper growth or 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 um you know large amounts of capital dumped on your head uh you don't get to do that balancing um so i don't see any reason why we won't continue to double every year like we have for the past four years uh for uh, quite a while um and um we don't have any strong ambition to always stay small we always want to be you know friendly and we always want to be high quality and we won't grow if if we can't find the high quality people to do it how do you you never given up any of your equity for capital from vcs but you give any equity to employees or we we actually just we we we, for for the first few years we didn't do that because literally when we had four employees and it it just wasn't worth the money to hire a lawyer to draw up the legal papers to give them equity but we always promised that they would eventually get it when it was worth something. And a couple of months ago, we actually recently launched a, a, a restricted stock plan. It's not stock options. It's just plain old stock grants that are 
restricted because we're not public. So does that mean that you guys are on the pathway? That's the ambition to go public or get acquired? That's a really good question. And um, it's sort of interesting. People are starting to think about exit strategies. Uh, that, that, that actually, incidentally, is one of the things that's sort of busted about the venture capital model is that it always assumes certain types of exit strategies. And here's something Paul Graham wrote a couple of days ago, which I'll repeat and, and, and take this opportunity to explain what VCs can do about it, I guess. What Paul Graham said is the old model of, of, of when you think about a VC fund, a VC fund is typically a seven to 10 year fund that takes some capital in at the beginning, spends it over the first few years, continues to reinvest it. At the end of 10 years, it has to turn all that stuff, or seven or 10 years, it has to turn all that stuff over to the LPs, to the limited partners. And the limited partners either want cash or shares in public companies. They don't want you know, problem companies that are struggling along or zombie dead companies or anything like that. And so there's a real strong need to have an exit strategy within seven years or five years, depending on what's left in the fund at the time you get your investment. And this is a very fundamentally a very, very big problem because if you look at any successful software product in the history of the world, it and you look at the hockey growth curves of any of those hugely successful products, Excel, Lotus Notes, Microsoft Windows, whatever, the, the hockey growth stick, make all the big money, it happened in year 10. And so this is a sort of a problem if you have a seven-year fund or if you only have six years left to go on your 10-year fund or whatever because the big return... Return happens in year ten, and so VCs are fundamentally misaligned, I think, with the soft with software, and uh, that's a big problem. So the exit strategies that they're looking at, the two possible exit strategies really are IPO or acquisition. And what Paul Graham said is IPO is becoming increasingly, thanks to Sarbanes uh, Oxbury, IPO is becoming increasingly less desirable. And that leaves acquisition, and the acquiring companies in today's market are Google, Amazon, and Yahoo, and maybe Microsoft. That's it, really. It used to be Cisco. I don't know if Cisco is still a part. There's, there, there occasionally there are other companies, but Google, Amazon, and Yahoo are the people. Google, Amazon, Yahoo, and Microsoft are the people that you might be thinking about these days. And those companies are starting to figure out that they don't need to be buying companies for two hundred million dollars from VCs. They can buy them for two million dollars from the founders a couple of years later. Without the $10 million that the VCs put in, it all gets wasted on stupid Super Bowl ads or on hiring 100 employees or whatever. And so the funny thing is that today, I think that a company that takes VC puts itself at an enormous disadvantage to its exit strategy because it's going to create the need for there to be such a, high, such a higher valuation when they get acquired by Google and Amazon. They're going to be competing you know, when, like, I, I love Six Apart. I think they're great. But when they go to try to sell themselves to Google, Amazon, Yahoo, or Microsoft... They're going to be competing against these two guys in a dorm room, and they're not going to. And because of the VC that they took and the amount of money that they spent, the valuation that they're going to demand is going to be very high. So they have they have a very high cost built into the, their company. So maybe they won't get acquired, but they have that disadvantage if they want that particular exit strategy. And and so they're stuck with Sarbanes Oxbury, I guess. Uh, so that that that's basically what Paul Graham said. And his suggestion for the VCs to fix it, uh, I can't remember right now. But my suggestion. <laughs> For fixing this problem. So this is four years after you uh, figured out what the problem was. Now we're hearing the solution. Uh, well, this is a, yeah, this is the solution to the, the, to the current squeeze. I mean, the current squeeze, which Paul Graham has correctly identified, is that you can build a, a company for very little money. And the companies that are doing the acquiring today don't need what the VCs have to add. And the IPO route doesn't seem as attractive as it has in the past. And I don't necessarily believe that. I don't think Sarbox is really going to kill people. But And so the VCs are squeezed between the fact that companies don't need that much money. They can bootstrap because we've learned how to do it. We have Linux and, and, and Dells and stuff like that. We don't have to use Solaris and Oracle anymore. And we can start companies really cheap. And uh, over the last five years where the VCs, the VCs basically buy 
refusing to invest in anybody for, during the nuclear winter of the dot-com fallout have actually, unfortunately, now created a super breed of entrepreneur that is immune <laughs> to the need for money. It's sort of like you spend, you spray, you put too much rat poison down and you get these super rats that can't be killed in your yeah. house. And they, you know, through their sort of uh, stinginess, I guess, with money during the dark years, they've now created, you know, rafts and rafts of companies that have learned how to get deeply profitable with, you know, with a credit card. And um, so there's this, there's this huge squeeze. They don't know how they're going to be able to invest the money in anything. And, and that the acquiring companies don't want to buy the VC funded companies when they can buy the two guys in Cambridge, Massachusetts, directly from Paul Graham at a great discount. So... That's his model. If I were in VC right now, what I would be looking at thinking about is what about the big successful private company that just has a huge net present value but is not a publicly traded company? It just has dividends. And my favorite example is SAS. The trouble is a VC fund is not yet set up in a way. Now, there are no VC funds that are set up in a way that they can produce at the end a company that just generates huge swaths of cash reliably every month. Because of that need to flip to get out at the end of the seven or ten years. And to me, that's just a legal problem. It's like, let's figure out how to do a fund where there's no exit requirement and you might get stuck in this front fund for the rest of your life. And maybe you can sell your shares in the fund or something like that so that, so that you, can, you, can, you can cash out of it if you want to. But basically what an IPO does is it takes that stream of future dividends of a non-public company and sort of accelerates some of them and puts all that cash into the owner's pockets, which is why it's incredibly tempting. And that's why I actually think... When I look at it, probably my two best options for Fog Creek would either be like an SAS model where a company that you know just produces ridiculous dividends for its owners uh, on a consistent basis. Or at some point, we might say, hey, the IPO window is open. Let's accelerate a bunch of that future revenue, put it all in our pockets right now so that we can spend it while we're young and good looking and we don't have to spend it when we're old in Florida. So everybody from Florida is going <laughs> to send me an email. <laughs> we're not old in Florida. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> So if a VC calls you up and yeah. you know you bash them for it, they say, "Okay, you know, you put some money into my fund, you'll get it back sometime over the next fifty years." Uh, uh, no, I don't need money. <laughs> Sorry, but I actually think that there are people that need money and they need small amounts of money at the beginning. And I actually think that you know that this the the opportunities are there. There's one thing which the v, which VCs and angel investors claim to do. Uh, besides providing capital is we provide contacts and we'll open doors and we'll get you a great CEO and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, there's a lot of myth to that. A lot of bad VCs really don't do that. They brag that they do it. Mm-hmm. A lot of good VCs do it and think that they're doing it, but maybe they're doing it in a bad way. Like maybe they're introducing a company to a great customer who wants something that's just 20% different from what the rest of the market wants. And now a company is forced because their board member told them to, to make a product for this one guy instead of the product that the, that the whole market once, and I've seen that many, many times. But I think there's a lot of value in this, like the connections and the knowing, you know, who we know and, and, and giving you good advice and stuff like that. And we will be thinking about that because we here at Fun Creek have connections and are able to give advice and are able to do introductions. And, and, uh, and so we're always trying to think of a ways to unbundle that aspect of the VC benefit provided to startups somehow. Cool. Well, I guess uh, there'll be a lot of things out there for entrepreneurs to be looking from, from Fog Creek. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for interviewing me. I really, I think Venture Voice is definitely one of the best podcasts I've, I've, I've ever heard in the last few years. It's one of the only ones that's not about podcasting, and that's really appreciated, and the production quality is great, and the production values are terrific, and I just love your show. Well, it takes a lot of training to not talk about podcasting, but I've <laughs> it off. Well, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. 
That's all for my interview with Joel. Hope you enjoyed. We've really been getting a lot of great responses, both on our website, www.venturevoice.com, and via email. I've had a particular treat lately. A couple of my listeners have gone off and been inspired to start their own podcasts. One is Frank Peters, who I had the chance to meet at the Podcast Expo last week in Ontario, California. Frank started a podcast interviewing all the tech titans of Orange County. He was very excited to show me a write-up that he got, I have it right here, in the OC Register, where the newspaper there asked him for his favorite podcast, and he mentioned mine. Thanks a lot to Frank for getting me in the uh, newspaper. We also just got a write-up in the Daily News and the Long Island Business News and the New York Times recently. So it's been really great to see just podcasting hitting mainstream and people really looking for this kind of information. Also, Eric Olson, another listener of ours, Eric Olson, who just left his job up at Cambridge Associates in Boston, a company that pretty much decided which venture capital firms to invest in. Now he's going off to a startup feed burner, and he was also inspired to start his own podcast called Venture Week which is a roundtable of people in venture capital and business. So if you're having trouble filling up your time and Venture Voice doesn't quite take all your commute time, pop over to his site too. A lot of other great listener response. We're going to start reading and reacting to it a bit more at the end here, so keep it coming to talk at VentureVoice.com. I also just want to mention really briefly that I just launched a new company myself. I noticed podcasters like me and Aaron, who does all the the behind-the-scenes work on this podcast, we just have it pretty much take over our lives. We spend all our time working on these. I was at the Podcast Expo to do it right, to do it good for the listeners out there. It is one time-consuming process. And we also have this requirement that we need to eat. We need to make some money to live. So we launched a business just recently called Radio Tail, and the purpose of that business is to insert ads into podcasts and basically facilitate that sponsorship so podcasters like myself and everyone else out there can make some money off their podcast without compromising the content and even produce better content because they can focus on it now. So if you're interested in checking that out, please do. Just wanted to mention that because we take uh, the risk of conflict of interest very seriously here at Venture Voice. We never take any money from people who are coming on the show to be on the show. So we really keep it as an editorial show. We interview people who we think are interesting. We go after them for interesting stories. So wanted to let you know that. Kind of put all my cards on the table and hopefully get all your feedback on that. So we hope to keep making the show better and helping other podcasters make that better. I usually don't talk at all about my own ventures, so I'll leave that brief. And if you're interested in anything more, check out that business. Otherwise, keep tuning in to hear interviews with the best entrepreneurs out there. As always, this is Venture Voice, entertaining entrepreneurship.